Hey y'all, thank you for tuning in to part two of our interview with Stuart Wells. So I think I was talking about, um, you know, this cheetah work that we had done that kind of had an, in, an impact on how cheetahs were managed. Um, while I was at the, at the Smithsonian's National Zoo, I was able to implement another study uh, because we knew that cheetahs in the wild lived in these coalitions of males and the females were solitary, but zoos uh, weren't actually following that. I remember they were trying to figure out how to get cheetahs to breed in, the, in any way they could, not necessarily based on their sociality. So having an opportunity to design that facility to manage cheetahs in coalitions like males and then you know, have females that were away from males and isolated if they wanted to be helped a lot. And it also allowed me to, to conduct another study to determine whether the male coalitions were important to maintain in zoos. Um, so we did a little set, a study based on, um, you know, what happens when you're, when you're affiliated you know, if you if you miss somebody when they're gone, there's a there's an increase in certain kinds of behaviors uh, in humans. It happens too, but with animals, you know, they might increase their vocalizations, like searching behavior. They might become more um, active, uh, looking for that person, that animal. So we did a separation of, of coalitions, you know, and then we would separate them for a certain amount of time, and then put them back together and monitor the behavior change and vocalizations during that separation and then back together. And through that, we could determine that these coalitions that were formed in zoos by males were, were uh, important. They were, they were, you know, they were um, important and it, it caused stress if you separated these male cheetahs. Um, and that was another important uh, piece of information in managing cheetahs around, around the, country because up until that point they would put them in coalitions if they needed to but if they wanted if they needed to send one male to another zoo they wouldn't necessarily send both males in a coalition to another zoo they would just send one and that oh, that wow. study uh, the results of that study helped us uh, define how to move male cheetahs either you only move females from zoo to zoo or you move males in pairs you don't move a single male uh, from one zoo to another. So that was kind of the insight and and the, the studies with cheetahs. But one of the things that, you know, I, I liked all of the work that I did at the National Zoo of Smithsonian. We had a lot of education programs to talk about the kind of research that we were doing with cheetahs. But one thing that I was felt like I was missing was doing real field conservation with these animals. And I also missed Arizona. I mean, I, I really, <laughs> I really like DC in some ways because there's such so much history, you know, in that in that city, and you're so close to so much other, so many other historical aspects of this country. But I hated the winters. It was it was cold. It was cold <laughs> all all the time. I feel uh, you, man. And, and, you know, especially coming from Arizona to, to D.C., it was like, what, what in the heck is going on here? Excuse uh, me? 
Excuse me, I will much take the cold over 111 degrees, even though, listen, man, listen, I'm very poorly engineered for hot and humidity. I can take the dry heat, but with a large torso and small limbs, it's just, you know, Bergman's rule. Look that up. Uh, Does not, I'm not good for this. And I don't want to hear you bashing cold. I, I didn't bash hang, hang on here, hang on here. Let's back, back a second. We, we transfer Chris. We, we transfer Chris in solit- solitary to cold weather environments. Yeah. You know, I've got nothing against snow. I like pictures of snow. <laughs> there's the there's this thing there's this thing in DC or maybe it's in the east in general where they have ice storms. You know, it's just like who invented this crap. You know, so I mean, you you come out in the morning and there's like two inches of frozen ice on everything because there happened to be this sleet storm, you know, just before freezing, and it just rained ice on everything. Your car is coated with this nice, you know, clear coat of ice. Your windshield's got an inch of ice on it, and the, and the my the last year I was in D.C., my goal was not to fall throughout the entire winter. <laughs> that was it that was my goal I, you know uh, and I did it but it was not without real difficulty <laughs> and and those those cartoon falls that you see where the person's legs go up and they're suspended in the air for about 10 seconds before they hit the ground those are real <laughs> those things do happen not quite 10 seconds but you do you do re- realize that you're actually completely horizontal to the ground for a good second before you actually hit the ground yeah you just try to land horizontal and and not face first right yeah but those those things that happen those pictures of those cartoon falls that that's what caused are caused by our storms Mm -hmm. (laughs) everyone get in the car and drive to work now (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then this other thing of black ice which you know is it's just really not right it didn't ask oh, yeah. to be out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, but anyway, Arizona, Phoenix, anyway, has none of that. You know, there's no hidden slick spots on the road. You know, if it snows, it, you might see it snow. I mean, people do go crazy when it snows because they never see anything like that in their life. Yeah. But <laughs> I bet it's like the episode of King of the, King of the Hill. Where yeah. Hank's like, I gotta get home, and they have like a dusting, and he like <laughs> skids past his driveway four or five times before he gets home. Yeah, hey, that's real in in Arizona, and when it rains, it, that happens, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, anyway, well, I've I, seen that, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, so I was ready to get back to to Arizona. Um, I started looking for jobs in the in Arizona, and I and I was looking at uh, Fish and Wildlife Service because that, you know, that's Fish and Wildlife Service. That's that's what I want. That was real conservation, right? And um, around the time that I I uh, had sent in a bunch of applications for bio, biologist jobs in Arizona, um, 9-11 hit. Actually, 9-11 hit. I had already given a, a notice of, of resigned from my job at the Smithsonian and I I had this weird desire to get out of DC over the weekend. I I, I sent in my notice like a you know a week and I was packing up all of my stuff and trying to get my 
everything in my car and go for some reason it was like this weird desire to get out of dc and i left um the morning of 9 11 from dc oh, wow. driving driving across the country and about the time i got to pennsylvania i turned on the radio and i heard that the, the pentagon had been hit and and of course the new york towers had been hit so i left I left town right at about the time the Pentagon got hit in D.C. Ah, that's really pretty weird. crazy time. Really strange. Anyway, I made it back to Arizona. I got a job with Fish and Wildlife after about uh, six months as a wildlife biologist. And I thought, here I am. I have arrived at uh, wildlife conservation because I worked for the ecological services branch of Fish and Wildlife. Ecological Services is, uh, administers the Endangered Species Act primarily, but they do other things. So that my job as a as a, a biologist, a wildlife biologist, was to um, in the in the job I specific job I had was to to assess um, interagency consultations, and as to you know by by law, if uh, if an interagency such as the Forest Service or um, the federal roads, if they want to do any kind of development in an area that happens to have an endangered species within it, they have to they have to uh, consult and file some something that's called a NEPA, National Environmental Protection Act, or an endangered uh, an environmental assessment. Yes, you know. They have to file those with with the ecological services component of U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and biologists that work there receive those, and they receive the project request from these agencies, and they determine whether or not that that activity is going to have an effect on the endangered species within that area. So that's what my job was in a nutshell. Um, so, so I mean, obviously, well, what were you going to say? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. No, I was just, just going to say, obviously, this was like the best fit for you and your kind of like passion uh, to kind of like oversee things and, and make sure it's going right. I mean, that's what I've gotten out of, of talking to you is like you want to make sure things are done the right way and, and, you know, that's important to you. Would you say that's correct? That was, like, the, that was the impression that I had of that job. Yes. <laughs> right. All right. Before, so let's so let's get into that then. Before I got that job, that's the impression I had of it. Um, but it's it isn't a very important. I mean, the Endangered Species Act is an incredible document. It was written in the seventies, and it has withstood a lot of attacks to try and weaken it. There's many attacks happening now. But the the power of that consultation was that it, anyone that wanted to do something in an area where there's a designated threatened or endangered species or their critical habitat, they needed to consult, make sure that what they were going to do wasn't adversely affecting those species. It could be numerous species in an area. So as a biologist, I had to I'd get these requests for, let's say, building a road, you know, up to from Phoenix to, to Flagstaff, a highway, right? You know that highway might go across several different species habitats and uh, and and you know critical habitats and, and involve a lot of different species. So my job was to to know what species that that project was going to 
have uh, to to affect, and then determine what the effect would be on those species and whether or not that project should go forward based on that interpretation of those impacts. That's uh, simplifying it, basically. Um, and then you get several different quite criteria once you do what's called a biological opinion. And that is this project is may affect not likely to affect this, you know, the continued existence of the species or no effect was the least, right? There's no effect on the species as a result of this project. And there's may affect not likely, may affect likely to affect or um, jeopardy with jeopardy attached, right? And jeopardy means if this project goes forward in any form whatsoever, the, the likelihood that the species involved are going to be adversely affected to the point where they may go extinct. So the agency itself has a lot of power to manage how these, uh, these habitats are, are utilized by, you know, other government agencies. Then and these other government agencies work with non-government agencies too on some of these projects like national parks and construction projects that happen in cities and so on. So it was a great, it was great to have that insight. One of the challenges with uh, this kind of agency is they don't have enough biologists to do the workload. That's one. And two, because that job is dealing with so many projects throughout the state, um, you don't really get a chance to go out and do field inspections of these sites. You're kind of relying on the, the information that they send you. You know, the NEPA report. Yeah. You know, the environmental impact statements. And then as, as part of the, the job, you also have to look at what's happened in that area previously. And by previously, I mean every single possible impact that happened in the past has to be considered as well as the current impact that's being proposed. Right. That could go back hundreds of years in some cases. So it sounds like it gets complicated right there. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I mean, I've never worked for like the government, but my perception of the government is this is exactly how it goes. <laughs> all right, let's hear it. <laughs> no, I'm just saying like exactly what Stuart's describing with all these moving parts and people not communicating or or with their own agendas yeah. is exactly how yeah. it ends up going. It's like methodical. But it's, it's like a slow. Oh, like it takes time. Is that right? It is, and and but you know what? But the ESA put limitations on these things. It's like if you get a request for a um, an opinion, it, it's got ninety. You have to have something come back in ninety days, and if it goes past ninety days, you have to put in a supplement saying you need one hundred eighty days, and so on. But because there's not enough biologists and there's so much work. Those kinds of criteria kind of went by the wayside a long time ago. They're still in place, but it's not a hard, fast rule. And especially right now in this current environment, I'm pretty sure you guys saw something about EPA regulations have just been relaxed. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the, that will be one of the impacts of those. It's like, well, you don't really have to respond to these things. Or, you know, you don't need to get the opinion done before you go forward with your project. That's That's kind of one of the one of the impacts of that, I, I think, but I haven't, I haven't worked in the agency for a while. Uh, so that, 
made me become what's called what we always uh, my fellow biologists would call ourselves computer jockeys computer conservationists <laughs> we we would we would see pictures of you know this habitat and the proposed action we wouldn't necessarily even see the site that we had to write this opinion on we had we relied on the these reports you know so and the history that was had been done in the past so it was kind of you I mean you get a real good sense of what's going on in that habitat by reading these kinds of documents but you're not there it wasn't field biology it wasn't field conservation it didn't feel like it yeah. and as chris as chris suggested there was you know because this is a government agency um that had um took its direction from the administration when the administration changed you got different leaders and different priorities like much like what's happening now but so you know there was a time when i worked for the agency which was in uh, 2000 uh, 2002 um you know we were not supposed to submit a jeopardy opinion we had to mitigate that opinion before we submitted it so that it would be a may affect not likely opinion so we had to find ways of making that it may affect not likely which is sometimes challenging. So what you're saying is, um, to just kind of like clarify kind of the fog of communication here, is that you were instructed to make things seem less intrusive or less destructive than they actually were based on what, what the objectives or the goals of the current administration were. Um, we were not mandated but we were not strongly encouraged to submit a Jeopardy opinion. There was no document that came to us that said no Jeopardy opinions would be submitted. But... <sighs> it sounds, it sounds like, animal, like animal politics, two degrees. So, like, you know, it turned to that eventually. eventually like, it it does. Larger in scale, it like, does. I mean, every job has a boss, you know what I mean? So Yeah. Um, but it, it turns out that that, the, the, the insight that I gained from that job was all about endangered species act and how, you know, every single one of these agencies, peripheral agencies that we were involved with had their same kinds of issues they were dealing with. So we, you know, it helped me with my next job was, uh, to, uh, second to my next job, which was that back at the Phoenix zoo, I, I got a position as a director of animal husbandry and that was uh animal husbandry i get a lot of flack for that because when especially when i first got the job when i tell people what i did i said well that sounds um interesting <laughs> what what is, what is it you're doing all day <laughs> so um but animal husbandry is an old you know agricultural term that just means all aspects of animal care it doesn't mean you know making husbands for animals <laughs> which no animal is, priests here right, right. It, you know i wasn't a matchmaker for animals although ultimately you know that was the bottom line for jobs but i had that job for uh, as an animal uh, the director of animal husbandry that oversaw training all the animal care staff exhibit design you know safety diet pretty much every aspect of animal care for the entire zoo was my job for that for that time um 
And some of the animals that we had at the time, there was a program called the Chiricahua leopard frog program. It's a local leopard frog species that's endangered here in, in Arizona, threatened, I, I guess. We had had kind of a, a, uh, a non-official uh, program for years at the zoo of, of hand, uh, what's called head starting, raising frogs from eggs and then releasing them back to the wild. And we worked with Game and Fish on that project. But it wasn't necessarily a, you know, a, a formal project. It was just something that we were interested in. It kind of stems back to our legacy of the Arabian Oryx. But after uh, after I worked in, as the husbandry director for a number of years, the zoo wanted to start a, a, a conservation department. And um, the CEO of the zoo asked me if I would be the director of that department, kind of out of out of the blue and i said sure i'll do that so it gave me an opportunity to develop the mission for this department and it was the it was really where you guys were getting at before is this is chris this is where i wanted to be to be in a zoo and have an opportunity to direct field conservation so we we established the the mission of that department uh is yeah, XC2, XC2 support of NC2 conservation, which means, you know, uh, managed animal support in wild animal conservation, um, XC2 support of NC2 conservation. So that was the mission of this entire department. That meant that any of the animals that we got in that, brought into that department were, were destined for release back into the wild. And that was also our, our criteria for accepting any new species in that department. So we worked with uh, local conservation agencies like Arizona Game and Fish, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, to identify projects that they had where they needed augmentation of, of, of animals to support their wild populations. And those are the animals that we would bring into our conservation facility and release back to the wild. Um, so we ultimately we ended up with uh, the Chiricahua leopard frog. We moved that from the zoo itself, you know, being on just somebody's uh, string, to being one of the animals that was in the conservation center. And and then black-footed ferrets was another animal that we had been breeding again for release into the wild in Arizona and other places. We moved that animal into the conservation center, and over time we 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 acquired more species like narrow-headed garter snakes. Um, you know, uh, spring snail was like a little tiny snail, several fish species that were, that were locally endangered. Um, and one of them, the animals that we brought in was the Mount Graham red squirrel. Uh, and so my life on trying to develop a, a pilot breeding program for the Mount Graham red squirrel. And that's, that's what I was doing. When uh, when I started speaking with my advisor John Krowski, who had also been working with Mount Vernon Red Squirrel for many years, like a lot of years, <laughs> about uh, about doing a, a PhD on the on the work that I had, was developing for the Mount Graham Red Squirrel through the university program. So that's kind of brings me up to where I'm at now. Uh, I started that program in 2016. Um, realized pretty quickly uh, after two years 
so not as quickly as I'd like to. It was very difficult to to drive back and forth to Tucson and Phoenix and then head a department and then take coursework, uh, PhD program, and, and do either one of those effectively. So something yeah. had to give. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the, it was the, uh, the director position. But uh, for the last two years, I've been focusing just on uh, completing my PhD. Yeah, and, I was going to say that sounds like a huge uh, workload anyway, without the uh, without the, the director position. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm barely managing as just a Ph.D. student, so I can't imagine having another job. And then also, like, I think we should all just kind of congratulate Stuart is kind of closing in on the light at the end of the tunnel here for his uh, Ph.D. project. Um you we'll we'll get there, but he's in his uh, you know completion stages. We'll say he's doing his comps <laughs> soonish, and that's uh, awesome. That's exciting. Yeah. So we we you know we are really in into the cutting edge stuff here, and that's exactly what's going on here. So yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, the comps, it, it seems like that should be an acronym for something, and I'll, I'll come up with something soon for one of these days. <laughs> but, you know, the comps in this, in this, at this university means it's a, it's a week of, at least a week of a question each day from each of your committee members that gives you, they give you one to two days to answer that question. You know, some have told me an average of 30 pages for each answer. Oh, wow. Uh, Wait, what, what kind of <laughs> questions do they ask you? We don't really know that, <laughs> so it can be anything. It, a lot of it are is about the courses that you've taken and also the track. You know, what are you studying and why, and peripherally how that's. You know, I in my case, you know, I'm looking at behavior physiology of Mount Graham red squirrels. So they might ask me a question as to. It's very broad, you know, describe how climate change has impacted the research that you're doing and in what ways. Can you describe specifically how that might uh, resolve for the for the survival of the species? So I can't just say one sentence to that. You know, I have to describe why that animal's there, what's going on with its habitat, you know, what sorts of challenges caused it to settle in a particular habitat, what kind of challenges going to allow it to keep it from surviving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. I'm I'm anticipating a lot of questions that I won't be able to answer. Right, so, <laughs> so, 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 give me out on this on this comps here. So comps conclusion. Compre it, no, it's it's comprehensive exams. We call them comps. Oh. <laughs> it's, that, that's what I was joking about. Is that comps should be an acronym for, you know, complete. I, I, I think ours has got something though. Oh, I was it. I was gonna say conclusion on my oh. precious squirrels. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That works. It, it works. <laughs> that's all that matters, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's where I'm at now. Is and and it kind of circles a little bit back to cheetahs because you know that whole uh, study looking at behavior and and then connecting it with physiology is is what the research I'm doing with squirrels is the same kind of concept of trying to 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 look at a physiological. Uh, uh, look at behavior to determine a physiological indices 
but it's different. It, although they're both they're both the same in a way that if you put them together at the wrong time, they can kill each other, which makes it doubly important to not put them together at the wrong time, mm-hmm. unless that unless that's your goal. Um, so we and then then with the case of the, the squirrels, there's only you know a hundred left. So you know the, when we brought them into the the center at the at the Phoenix Zoo, we got it. We brought in six animals, a uh, small percentage of squirrels in the wild. Still, fairly you know a large percentage of the overall population. But since then, there's been a, a huge fire on that mountain in 2017. Was, uh, this fire swept through the remaining habitat, burned 90 percent of the remaining habitat for the Mount Grand Red Squirrel. And, oh, really? And their numbers went down to like, you know, 35, they believed. Wow. Uh, when, when they were able to do a, a survey in the next year, they found over 65. I'm estimating 100 because a lot of times you can't detect wow. them all, but still, yeah. it's not very many. Yeah, that, that sucks. And that's, uh, we talked with Neil about kind of like, sky island dynamics but that's like look that up if you want to learn more but that's that's like this is this is a hot button issue in arizona so i mean one that's really cool but two it's really important so that's i mean it's awesome that you're like participating in it at this level um you know from my perspective yeah like so if if you weren't conducting this research and bringing the squirrels to the, the to your conservation place would uh do you think the population would possibly become extinct yes and they might they might be go go extinct even though we've got because you know we started this program with the squirrels back in 2014 um you know early on we got a successful uh, well we got a breeding but not successful and and uh and just to clarify they've never reproduced outside of their natural habitat. So if the zoo, you know, since left the zoo, but if they happen to have offspring, it'll be the first time ever. Wow. So uh, uh, what, why do you think the reason for that is? It, is it because like the, the, the shock of changing locations or the new environment itself? Mm-hmm. Well, the design of the conservation center, part of that mission was actually to support of NC2 conservation. So what the way that we set up facilities for animals is that we would understand how they lived in the wild and we would design the facility they were coming into with that in mind much like we i was able to do with the cheetahs at the at the national zoo uh but but each animal has very different needs right so you have to know what's going on with them Uh, so we took that into account that there might be a shock to their to their system coming into a a, a non- non-wild setting um part of the problem was that they they were known to only have one reproductive day per year oh wow and only about only about six hours during that day what the heck tough life that squirrel got in everyone (laughs) everyone said that and and it's and it's true when when we set this program up, my goal was to try and find that reproductive window, that day, yeah, uh, yeah. for each animal. Because remember, that's not necessarily the same for each animal, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. 
And so that's what I was looking at physiologically and then trying to match that with a behavioral indices. Uh, and in that process, I discovered that instead of a single cycle, estrus cycle per year, they were having several, which no one had actually recorded before. The only way we were able to do that is because we had them in this managed setting. We could collect a fecal sample every day, like we did with the cheetahs. Except yeah. for, you know, and so that means you get a longitudinal, a day by a day by day picture of what's going on with their physiology when you analyze those samples. And you really can't get that in the wild unless you track, follow that animal around all day, every day. Yeah. yeah. And collect that freshest sample as soon as it's dropped and then go back that next day and collect that same animal each day. Yeah, do, <laughs> for, and, do that for, and do that for three years. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> impossible. <laughs> so, so that's why it's such an advantage. You know, a lot of people say, well, you got them in this setting, you know, and it's not unnatural. But sometimes you can't collect information that you would collect this uh, from this animal in any other way. So yeah, you yeah. have to recognize the opportunity when it comes. Uh, also, because you're using fecal, you're not doing this invasive, you know, like lab testing thing. You're not catching it up, drawing blood from it. You know, all you're doing is what the animal does naturally. Kind of ties back to what I said about the oryx, you know, is uh, I, I, I learned about oryx intimately because I raked up their crap every day. I was, only, <laughs> I was only partially joking because a lot of things that you have to learn as an animal keeper is that how does that crap look, you know? Is it? It's not formed yeah, yeah. as well as the day before. Or it's kind of dry or it's not yeah. as dry as it used to be. <laughs> you know, those those kind of things tell you things about the animal. Well, that insight actually kind of helps you a little bit more with, you know, this. It's kind of a natural, a natural progression to use that information, but with this other tool, which is endocrinology. You know, looking at these hormones after they've been metabolized by the animal's body tells you about what's going on with their physiology yeah, at the yeah. time that they, you know, they, they deposited that, that fecal. So anyway, that's, that's why we use that as a tool. And, it, and then you work backwards from that and you develop a management setting that's a strategy that says, here's the best time to put these guys together. And we use that to get the first breeding ever without injury of these Mount Graham red squirrels at what we call XC2. We try not to use captive because that's a whole nother whole, whole nother topic but it it kind of uh, brings up if, if any of you guys close your eyes right now and you say that word the first picture <laughs> i'm pretty sure comes to mind is bars but yeah uh, we we try and avoid that especially in zoos now because uh, it really does it's kind of gets back to that whole point i started off with is that you know zoos have are are the victims of their own successful marketing strategy. You know, people came to zoos for entertainment initially. That, that hasn't changed because that's such a strong marketing component that it, it's, kept, it's kept its power in people's minds for, for generations. Kind of like some of those commercials, like, uh, you know, uh, you guys are younger than me, but some commercial I remember as a kid, you can take you can take you can take Salem out of the country, but can't take the country out of Salem. It was a cigarette commercial. Oh yeah. Um, 
and then they 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 started progressing that commercial over time they would say you can take salem out of the country but and then they would just do this little ding right at the end yeah, of that commercial yeah. and that's all they would do that's pa- and, like pa- pavlov or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah they were, they were initiating this pavlovian effect you know and your, your <laughs> brain would immediately fill in you can you can you can't take the country out of salem you were stuck for the rest of your life well that's zoos you know you can't you, you lions and tigers and bears right oh my <laughs> yeah there you go so um that's where that's what happened but we Anyway, I don't want to get on my my soapbox about that word captivity. There are some yeah. ethnic considerations too of words like that that you have to be careful about. You know, you say the word captive around some people, and you know, some ethnic groups they might have um, a, a subconscious kind of visceral response to that that you know raises their blood pressure. Yeah, brings uh-huh. up memories or ideas. Yeah. You know. So even though you might say it, you know, just describing an animal you're talking about, it might actually invoke the kinds of responses from your audience that you aren't intending. Anyway. So, yeah, that's a good point. Like you're, yeah, even just using that, that language, mm -hmm. that language is used in other ways and it could invoke an emotional response in people, even though that's the correct language to use for this instance. Yeah. So word choice is always kind of iffy you know yeah it's difficult and that's you know and I, i'm not saying it's criticism it's a word that so when i've when i've done uh, presented that to folks they say well what word should you use because and the reason they ask that question is because that's the word they've always used right yeah um if they had always used another word that didn't have so much you know baggage with it they wouldn't have any issue with it but it also gets back to the, why it's difficult to change what you believe to be true once you believe it to be true right. you don't you don't want to you know your brain doesn't want you to it's a survival strategy that humans have evolved over years you do this the way you're doing it because you didn't get killed last time you did yep wait so uh stuart what word would you use instead of captive um so the, you know i i use managed managed care uh, animals you have to add more words, and that's that also kind of you know tells manage, you how managed yeah. care is a good one. I manage, went yeah. Out of, yeah. Um, and XC2 is kind of you know highbrow, and I don't use it very often because most people don't know what the heck it means, and it's Latin. And Latin, you know, anytime I still I get pushback from Latin when I try and read it, so uh, but XC2 means outside of its natural habitat. So sometimes I just say when it's out of its natural habitat, you know. Okay. In a managed setting. So the the problem is we're inherently lazy, and I don't mean that in a derisive term. We we like to we like to conserve energy as a human being. Conserving words is is considered a power. So if you have to add five words when you could use one, you don't want to you don't want to add five words, right? Yeah. So it's really hard to break that kind of a cycle, but it's an important one to break once you recognize that, you know, you might ha- be having an emotional impact on people that you don't really intend to if you're using this word, so. It's a fine line. Yeah, it is. Um, anyway, so that kind of gets me to where we are now, and we've had some success with the, the uh, physiology. One thing is proving, you know, that the cycles that we were seeing um uh on the analysis 
actually are associated with the behavior that we're seeing and whether those are truly cycles because if they are cycles no one's really shown that before so i have to you know use various tools to to confirm that statistically that that is in fact are they are more than one cycle a year going on with these guys and i think uh, you you mentioned this before but like how like how small did they think the window was before your study yeah one day a year one day a year six hours about six hours and that's that's a you know i think that was established in the early on with actually with the subspecies with the species actually and and biologists you know again they really didn't have any way to do a longitudinal study so what they're looking at is the reproductive activity occurring as a field by observation biologist, right? You know, they see all of this, this cacophony of activity on a single day or over a few days with different animals and then nothing. So, you know, over time, the literature starts to get filled up with these events that they're being described accurately of reproductive, you know, activity happening basically in one day you know, for several different animals in the wild. And that becomes a body of information that becomes, you know, uh, accepted observation of how these animals behave. Without that physiology, you don't know any better. And, you know, one explanation for that is that they're just efficient breeders. They don't need more than one breeding event to become pregnant. Evolutionary advantage. Right, which is Uh, a a whole different reproductive strategy. Like, you know, not not that it's like contextually important, but just like in the cycle of the episode, cycling back to lions, it's like, you know, the the male has to breed her 60 times before she is ready to actually have a baby. The squirrels are like, no, today is the day. Today is the day. I've been storing these nuts all winter. Are you talking about the lions or the squirrels? (laughs) So imagine you're a male squirrel and it's breeding day and you sleep in a couple hours. It's like right. six, six hours. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. You wake up. Wait till next like, year, buddy. Sorry. It's like that. It's like that meme where it's like the male emerges from his slumber to see that yeah. all there's no females nearby. Well, you know, if it's one one thing that's you know helpful to the males is they retract their 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 testes outside of breeding season so at least they don't have to lug that around all year hashtag rodents (laughs) Rodents. also look that up look that up if you want to learn more about rodent reproduction and a lot of mammals but especially rodents i mean if they're rodents are often seasonal breeders and those like if the males like if it's not the right season to breed he's not descendant We'll just say that. Right. <laughs> yeah. We'll just say that. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, what's exciting about that, that discovery is that, you know, instead of having a, looking for a single day for these managed squirrels, we, we, could, we could start to focus on the, the breeding season, you know, which was like six months. 
and try and narrow down that window of re receptivity based on the physiology initially and then the behavior um, ultimately, and then use that behavior to develop windows of when we could put these animals together for the safest moment in time. It turns out there was like three days where there was no aggression and they might stay together uh, in the same box. Otherwise, we had to have them separated. But the huge advantage of being able to find that window of less aggression was that we could leave them together for 72 hours, right? That yeah, six-hour yeah. window is probably still true because the estrus doesn't last that long. But now if, that's, if it starts to begin at like two in the morning, you know, Stuart didn't have to be on the camera or, or in the office waiting for that moment to happen so I could put these squirrels together, right? Um, they could decide, you know, and then, now we're getting to where it's more of a natural response to a receptivity and the behavioral, you know, the behavioral interplay that has to happen between the male and the female uh, when, the, when the, they're trying to determine whether there's compatibility. You don't have to be there. You know, it's it's not this uh, clinical thing of putting the get these animals together for five minutes and you can only watch them, you know, and make sure that there's no aggression and then you have to separate them if you have to leave. Now you can just let it sort of organically evolve, evolve as you will, as you were. Uh, and so there's a better chance of success and less injury, of, of less chance of injury. Yeah, yeah. So this is like a this is like a perfect example of a, of a a species that's management has been taken into what what is the correct term not captivity because we're oh, trying managed, to manage managed manage care, care. managed yeah. care but it has absolute direct benefits and application to the wild members of that species and population and i think that's very special but uh and and you've told us kind of like what are kind of the end conclusions of that right now do you have anything to like finish with that or no you know but you make a good point because not only are we we're learning that yes you know there's there's maybe more than one cycle and, and that, that hasn't been definitively shown yet but it's pretty it looks pretty good uh, but also you know because we're looking at these these hormone levels of, of managed animals and we can compare those to hormone levels of wild animals some of these hormones um, are stress they, they determine the level of stress so we can compare the the stress hormones to wild animals versus the ones in this, in the, this managed setting and if they're higher then we see something is maybe not right with how we're managing them if they're lower than you know or the same then we're we can kind of bet that we're probably doing it right okay so that's one thing and the other is you know if the cycles prove uh, turn out to be proven then it gives you a different take on what's going on in the wild. You know, maybe the males are driving reproductive uh, uh, season, even though the females are responsible for accepting the males. You know, males can't breed unless they're unless they have developed uh, gonads for the season. So. Uh, even though, and we've found evidence that the females cycle through the winter, even though that's not the breeding season in the wild. 
mean, yeah, Chris. No, I I mean, I've already said that, like, I find this very fascinating. And again, I, I would encourage people, if you're really interested in kind of like how different species reproduce, like the easiest thing is to look at kind of rodent reproduction and how it's so seasonal, as we've kind of discussed here, where like the males uh, only have descendant testes for certain periods of the year. Uh, but that is just another thing to keep in mind um, when you're looking at breeding programs. And then also, like, that's just another thing that had to be, like, taken into consideration and then also studied to, like, another level of depth in this, like, very endangered population of this animal, right? Like, which would not have been possible without doing it in kind of um, an ex-situ or managed care or captivity situation. So that, that, that that's something really important to, to keep in mind, again, kind of like circling back to what we've talked about. Yes. Um, and I, and that's the only thing I think somebody asked me another reason why we, why we think they're not, Reading very well outside of outside of the wild, and another possibility, even though we've had you know breeding, uh, rodents, uh, Chris, you probably know this. It's they have this thing it's called the Bruce effect, um, and it's not you know they don't like people named Bruce. I, I think it was the researchers who identified this this uh, impact that uh, females, if they if they sense or or have an olfactory um, presence of another male when they're pregnant, that they spontaneously uh, abort offspring. If they're, you know, so so in this managed setting, uh, there may need to be another step that has to happen if they get a breeding, and that is to isolate that female away from any other any other animals. We saw something like this with cheetahs, although it's very different. But we would see that the females wouldn't cycle if they were if they even came into kind of a close proximity of a of a male or even another female, so the this the uh, the enclosure had to be designed in such a way that you know they you could uh, isolate them if you needed to, but also keep them in the in the species um, specific enclosures. So yeah, all of that has to be taken into consideration in, in developing these kinds of management programs, and then. You kind of have to be a sleuth and figure out, okay, well, we've eliminated all the other things that we think are impacting it. Now, this is what remains. Let's see, develop a way of ascertaining if this is impacting our success. And if so, how do we alleviate that? So I guess that's why we become scientists, because we like to ask questions about things. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of like the underlying theme of uh, what you even started with was, hey, I'm down at the local river creek and I move a rock and yeah. I want to know what moved and why it moved and where it's going and what it eats. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, we're really here kind of like trying to put a puzzle together as biologists of, you know, the world around us, I would say. And oftentimes, I'm not saying always, because, you know, 
there's plenty of people who pick up passion anywhere in life, but oftentimes it's it's the kid outside who's trying to figure out like what is that worm and why is it there and what is it doing or frogs or fish or or whatever and then it can carry you through life to a to a position where you're asking like how to save a species. And I think that's really almost kind of like poetic. I don't want to get like too emotional here, but that's kind of a graceful sequence of events and questions and answers that come together uh, to to where you are, I guess we could say. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I you know I sometimes feel like I've 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 boarded this rudderless ship at this stage of my life. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, at least I have a sale. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey man, Odysseus got taken in by the Cyclops. Okay. That was the problem. (laughs) And he solved that. So anybody can get where they need to go as long as you have passion to drive you there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed this interview. I think uh, we've all done a great job. And honestly, like I, I'm glad that you were laying it out there as you did, kind of just putting it on the table. Because, like I said, like a lot of these ideas are kind of under attack, unfoundedly, and we've really kind of like put out there exactly like a sample, multiple sample studies of how this can be direct benefit to species that we're managing. Um, and you know, I'm very appreciative that we were allowed to bring you on, but I just want to say like earlier, uh, we kind of talked about a job that kind of prepared you for what you're going to do with, with animals and behavior. And I just want to know if you have any more like stories from that, but I, I I know I don't want to go anywhere where it's out of bounds or anything, but just if you have any more, that'd be great. Um, crazy stories. Yeah, <laughs> the good, the bad. I'll take the good over the bad, but I want to hear more also. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't know where to, to go with stories, but I I found it very interesting to work with people, especially in the when I worked with uh, counseling uh, mentally unstable individuals. Yeah. And I mentioned that that could be very stressful. One um, one. Uh, of the people that I worked with was a, he wasn't actually technically mentally unstable, but his, his, he was, he had been in, in uh, maximum security prison in Arizona and Florence. Um, and he was sent to the facility uh, counseling ward that I worked on because he was uh, in danger. He was a, uh, what they called a hit, a hit man in the prison system, uh, but his he he was trying to work both sides of the the gang. They had prison gangs. Uh, he worked for the Aryan Brotherhood, which was a big popular prison gang, and the Mexican Mafia, which was another. Or, these are both names, specific names of prison gangs. He worked for both of them, and 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 did hits on each of the each of the. Uh, different gangs and they discovered this about him so they, oh no came they, after the facts and they yeah and they so they they, they tried to kill him um and they almost 
did, but to get him out of that situation, he was sent to the ward that I worked on. And technically he was, you know, probably what you would consider. So he was a sociopath. Anyway, I, I worked with him for a while and I knew his background, but I won't say his name, but I, uh, uh, he had this ho hobby of making these little ceramic, these little tiny miniature ceramic dishes, you know, <laughs> sounds, innocent enough. <laughs> huh? sounds innocent enough yeah and you know and i and one of the things that i would uh, was i would do was to go through these uh rounds and check you know make sure everything was secure and you know in the art class that he was went and he would he had set out some of these ceramic dishes really tiny really fragile things and uh they were drying and i occasionally i just said oh this is kind of cool and i picked it up and it broke. <laughs> so oh, no. so uh, I put it back down. I thought, well, I need to tell him, you know, that I broke that. So I did. I, after a week of thinking about it. <laughs> so I told him, I said, yeah, um, you know, I just want to let you know, I was when I was walking around, I, I, uh, I was looking at those really cool ceramic things that you, you make. And I picked up one just to look at it. And it, and it broke. And he said, um, you shouldn't be touching my stuff. <laughs> oh, dang. That's, and that's all that's he kinda, said. That's kind of scary. <laughs> that's the only thing he said to me. But, you know, it it, uh, it was chilling. <laughs> so, just the way he said it. And there was absolutely zero emotion in what he said. So, yeah. that, that uh, anyway, that was an experience where I realized I, sh I shouldn't be touching his stuff. Yeah, that sounds that sounds kind of horrifying. One of the one of the jobs that I had as a, a biologist at the Smithsonian was well, and also at the at Phoenix Zoo. Uh, one thing about cheetahs is that they have this uh, behavioral response called proximity response to proximity. Oh. It's a little different than other cats, large cats, because cheetahs. Um, recognize what's called height dominance you know they're prey it's a prey selection adaptation so if something is like <laughs> i'm so sorry i couldn't hold that in that's okay <laughs> isn't that a rapper thing i don't know i haven't heard that is there a height dominance rapper thing? <laughs> the, you know uh, i don't know Wait, I, I think I think I missed something. Chris, can you explain? I think it's yeah, a go ahead and explain. To... Like having a hype man, okay, is a big thing with hip hop hype. artists. <laughs> what? So so hype hype. Oh hype. Oh okay. Hype dominance. Oh it means it means a height, tall tallness. Oh height. Yeah, that, that's what I thought you said. Height, right? Height, height, height dominance. Said, yeah. Not height. Chris I want to clarify. Okay. I thought you were talking about like he is like hyping himself up. Like oh, vocal. hype dominance. That's a behavioral tenet that I haven't explored as much, but it is there. Um, now, height dominance is, you know. So, you know, animals pr protect themselves by trying not to go after things that are bigger than them, taller than them, especially predators. 
Uh huh. So that's the tapes. <laughs> so cheetahs have that, you know, as things approach a height that they that to them evolutionarily strat strategy right. predicts right. that they won't be successful in eating. Right? It only makes sense because right. they're they're bigger, they're possibly stronger, and they can take yeah. you out easily. Is is that right. why like do cheetahs see us as being like tall, like tall? And that's taller? and that's what I, that's what I'm getting at is you you have to so part of the part of the training I used to train animal keepers uh, to to work in the yard with cheetahs. Yeah. Um, part of the reason for that was we we had this um, um well, there's there's no most places don't do this anymore but as, initially as cheetahs were being managed that part of the strategy was to actually go in the yard with them not to train them but to um but to be able to to assess them more closely and then when i worked at the smithsonian we had this uh coursing system it was a form of exercise where they would sprint but the only way to manage that that coursing system was to be in the yard with the cat so we had to train people to um to be in the yard with them plus we didn't want to train the cheetahs to like come to the open gate or, you know, so sometimes we'd have to use what's called a proximity response. And that has to do with that, that height uh, dominance. Whereas if you approach them and, and you're taller than them, they'll let you get to within a certain distance. And then they will, as a, as a uh, safety response, they move away. So you yeah, can kind of yeah. use that to actually guide them to where you want them to go. As long as you don't corner them. Yeah, anyway, yeah. so that that uh, that got written into my job description is to you know to train people to work in the yard with cheetahs, which was kind of cool, and um, but also my my boss uh, put in my position may be re required to break up fights cheetahs, which <laughs> <laughs> so I always uh -huh. found interesting too. And and there is a there's definitely a method for doing that without injuring yourself or the cats, but. Um, I, I I can say that there's only one, been a couple of cases where we were doing these uh, what what we call this management plan for cheetahs, where you put the female across the fence from the males. But because those males are so excited trying to get to the female, they get in each other's way and they get kind of angry with each other and they might start fighting and they could injure themselves. So you have to break that up. And there's a way to do it. But I, I can remember um, having to have one of my, my teammates I say, okay, they're, they're fighting, they're getting a little out of hand because one of them's got his, his fighting the other one, so we need to go in and break them up. So just uh, follow my lead. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope for the best. Uh, yeah, and it works out, but it's, you know, it's one of those adrenaline things where you, you probably don't, uh, don't think about it uh, until you're done doing it. Anyway. Yeah, but I don't know if those are kind of examples you're talking about. Chris, I, I, <laughs> that sounds awesome. That's a great story. I mean, you just reminded me of one of my favorite stories. So at my so my nature reserve is like adjacent where I do my research is adjacent to Kruger. It's not my nature reserve, but the reserve where I do my research is adjacent to Kruger. And within kind of the boundaries of that park, there's like a, a part that did not want to go to that 
industry, like ecotourism, whatever, and they're kind of like a private area, family basis-wise, whatever. Not judging them. But one of the giraffes on their property decided it wanted to fight one of the giraffes on our property. (laughs) And it literally just, like, stepped up. Like, these, these fences are, like, I don't know, 20 feet tall. Like, I don't know, like a wire, I don't know, every four feet. This giraffe decided I was going to tiptoe up the fence, climbed the fence, and started to fight the giraffe on our side of the fence. (laughs) I wasn't there. I was just told about it. (laughs) And then this property owner was like, hey, uh, can you give our giraffe back? And then the people on our side of the fence were like, hey, no, it's your job to keep the giraffe in. And if you don't, well, I'm so sorry, but, like, it doesn't happen that way. And that's kind of how the law that's kind of how the law works over there. But I just want to bring that up because I thought that was kind of, like, related and also very funny um, that <laughs> – Animals would literally climb a fence to fight each other for no reason, like at all. Yeah. I mean, what? I'm still trying to it. picture this tiptoeing giraffe. It's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It did it. It did it. And like, because <laughs> okay. you know, I, I've got this clear picture of a giraffe tiptoeing, and I, you know, don't don't yeah. ruin it for me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> giraffe climbing a fence. I almost see this. It's a, a yeah. It's not what you would perceive to be a regular fence, but it 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 did it, and I have no doubt. But Stuart, I'm so grateful that we got you on the podcast today. I mean, you were a great interviewee. As my as my friend Darren says, I just had a press record, and there you are. You took the whole show, but. Uh, Max and and Randall did a great job today guiding the conversation and then you know this is just a great show where we covered we covered subjects that are probably not out there very often um and I'm happy and and proud and appreciative that we had the group together today that we did well thank you for inviting me on on the show and I really enjoyed it it's kind of kind of a nice to to retrace the the path, you know, and things that I hadn't really thought about in a long time. So I do appreciate uh, being on your show, and 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 both you, RJ and and uh, Max, RJ, correct? Yeah. Yes. yes, yes. Um, thank you for yeah. all all of your all of your questions and interest. Thank you and, for being on. Uh, yeah. Um, I know. I know. I know. That uh, I learned a lot, and I think RJ learned yeah. a lot as well Super, about yeah. zoos and also a lot of other things. So I'm very, very glad to hear your experiences with the, uh, the biology and science field. And honestly, like I now know more about zoos than I ever have. So I am super happy. And yeah, also cool. psychology. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot. That's the point of, of this podcast. Uh, it was pretty great. All right. Well, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that was it was fun, you guys.